Usually we try to work our way through a passage, work our way through the various sections and the various themes. Today we are taking the day aside to focus on one little phrase in there that can be a little messy and confusing and just to get a clearer understanding of how those things work. So look with me, if you would, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, and I'm going to read to set the tone for it. I'm going to read verse, uh, really, 17 through chapter 3 and verse 5. So chapter 2, verse 17 through chapter 3, verse 5. Listen as I read God's word. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope and the joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. We sent Timothy, our brother, and God's co-worker in the gospel to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass and just as you know. For this reason... When I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Let's pray. Lord God, as we open up your word with a desire to consider it today, and particularly as we focus in this morning on trying to understand uh, the work of the adversary, of our enemy, the way that he seeks to tempt and to hinder and to thwart and deceive God, we would ask that uh, you would grant us some sense uh, of a clearer understanding of things this morning, of the things that, that were going on in this passage, even of the particularly re particular realities of this as they pertain to our lives. God, as we're here, as always, when we open your word, these are spiritual things that are given to those who are spiritual. So we ask that your spirit would work within us to give each one who's here attentiveness and clarity. Lord, I would ask especially that you would be pleased to grant um, that I would speak things in a very simple and a very clear and a very useful manner. God, use your word to grow us in our understanding and move us to give you even greater glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so the section of the scripture that we're really focusing in on today, really I'm looking at that phrase in verse 18, he, where Paul has been saying how much they longed to come to them. Remember, the church in Thessalonica, he had gone there, it had told us in the book of Acts, and he had only been able to be there three weeks, and then he was run out of town. And so in that short time, those who had professed their faith in Christ, he was really concerned because he had not had the opportunity to really teach them much more and establish them, prepare them for the difficulties and challenges that they will face in this world. 
towards the end of the section that I read there in chapter 3, verse 5. He reminds how he could bear it no longer because he was concerned that the tempter might have come in and tempted them. And the struggles and the challenges, the afflictions, the difficulties that they would face, he really hadn't had much opportunity to prepare them for just how hard it was going to be in their time, in their age, in their particular society. Now, we have it pretty easy by comparison to them right now. But God only knows if the time is not coming that we might face the same kinds of persecution and affliction that they were facing. But his concern is, what would be their condition if the tempter came in and tempted them? But more than that, back in chapter 2, verse 18, and kind of our primary focus today, he says this, I, Paul, wanted to come again and again. This ongoing desire that he could get back over there to minister to them, to strengthen them, to establish them, to see that they were well... But then the scripture tells us what kept him from getting back over there to Thessalonica. And it ends, this phrase ends by saying this at the end of verse 18. I wanted to do this, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. Now that's an interesting phrase and that's what we're really going to focus on today. Satan hindered us because it's a very strange and unexpected phrasing it's one that gets thrown away in many churches and it isn't the most often used phrase so as we we've got to be very very careful and it's important for us to remember this as a church what's the foundation of the church the gospel and the truth of christ what we have in the blood of christ right And, and and who's the head of the church Christ and the spirit who's given to us is given to glorify who Christ so who should we speak about more than anyone else Christ indeed and so definitely the devil and Satan never becomes our priority and it's a danger and an unhealthy thing if too many sermons are focused on him okay now when we look at this it's interesting because sometimes We might think Paul could have, and maybe you're thinking should have worded it differently. In 1 Corinthians, actually, chapter 4, he says this to the church at Corinth, chapter 4, verse 19. But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills. And we'll find out not only the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. So there he says, I will come to you, if the Lord wills. So we look again at our passage in Thessalonians, and could he not have said, I so longed, I so desired to see you face to face again? But it was not the Lord's will. Right? I mean, we would say that, and to say that would be accurate. It was not the Lord's will to open the way for Paul to return back to the church at Thessalonica. But Paul, in this instance, does not say only that it was not the Lord's will. He also says what? Satan 
hindered us. And it's important for us to know that because, you, you know, like I've warned that there are groups on this side, this side maybe who have far too much emphasis on Satan and the devil and demons. And there's just, there's just too much attention to those things. We want to be aware of them and we certainly will take note of them today. But there's an undue attention on those things. You got groups off on the other side that are almost denying his existence. They almost speak of the devil as just sort of a personification of evil. You know, just, just not that there really is a devil and there really are demons. Those are just ways to communicate so beautifully and poetically the wickedness that exists. That's wrong. There really is a devil. There really is Satan, and there really are demons, and they really are active. And the scriptures say that again and again. And so we want us to understand this. So the, the, the thing that we're going to consider today is how do we reconcile this effort and activity of the enemy, Satan, and his, with the sovereignty of God? That God is ultimately the one who's in control of everything. So how in the world could Satan stop Paul from going to do ministry? Those are challenging notions, aren't they? And I want us to begin to consider that. Now, beyond that, if you were to go to the book of Acts, for example, in Acts chapter 16, there is another place where Paul is hindered or forbidden to go, and here Satan is not mentioned. So listen as I read this. In Acts chapter 16, verse 6 and 7, this is all still by way of introduction, by the way. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. Now that's really strange, isn't it? How is it? I mean, it is the Holy Spirit who has delivered them to them the word. It's the filling of the Holy Spirit that emboldens them to declare the word. How is it now that the scriptures would say they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the gospel or the word in Asia. How is that? See, I'm just saying there. Now, some would say that can't be, but you got to hesitate on that. If, if ever your heart and mind is starting to scream that can't be because it's hard to understand, here's a problem. If the Bible says it, it is. It doesn't misword things, it doesn't misrepresent things. Now, Noting that when it says they were forbidden to speak the word in Asia, it means at that time, on that occasion, during that journey. Because they weren't enduringly forbidden from preaching the word in Asia. Actually, if any of you have ever read the book of the Revelation, which I'm sure many of you have because it's the book that's filled with all of those, um, that exciting imagery that many of us see of speaking of the things at the end. But that book begins, does it not, with letters to seven churches? And you have any idea where those seven churches are? They're in Asia. And so the word of God was ultimately and eventually spoken there. But simply not at that time. Interesting, still Acts chapter 16, verse 7. And when they had come up to Mycenae, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So now you're really confused, aren't you? 
So here they're trying to go here, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. They're trying to speak here, but the Holy Spirit did not allow them. They're trying to get over there, but Satan hindered them. Is it confusing yet? Good. Okay. Even it's important for us to know, get a sense of that. Now, when we want to consider the devil... I want to consider, first of all, this morning, some ideas, some things with regard to the devil's devices, okay? What the devil is actively doing to try to destroy the work of Christ, to try to destroy the work of the church. All right, some basic thoughts. We're going to be flying here through a lot of scriptures. If you try to keep up, you simply won't be able to. If you're going to try to look all of these up. If you want to note them down, I encourage you to note them down and look back at them. Otherwise, anyways, it's being recorded. Listen to what the, uh, God's Word says in John chapter 10, verse 10. And it's very important for us to see what, what is said. This is Jesus again speaking. And he says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. Now, that is... The sense of that is a good description also. We also know, and we'll see later, that the devil himself goes around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He does not attempt to do spiritual good to anyone. It's actually in John 10, 10, it's important. The thief comes to kill, to steal, kill, and destroy. Jesus says, I came that you may have life and have it more abundantly now just a brief aside because it's hard to resist those brief asides you know uh, he says i came that you may have life and have it that is life more abundantly watch out for the fellow who comes along and says life with all the abundance of the world life with all the abundance of things no no no. that's not what it says i came that you may have life and have it more abundantly it really we can go on further and think of things like when jesus communicated with martha outside of lazarus's tomb do you believe those who believe in me jesus says will never die and the one who believes in me though he die yet he lives those who believe in Christ, the scripture says, they have eternal life. That's pretty abundant. Because a life that lasts this many years, 10, 15, 20, 60, 80, that's limited. A life of abundance, and, and really it's abundance and much more than that. The sense of, uh, we, we have a sense of the reality of how everything came into being where the fool denies that God exists and begins to develop and concoct all kinds of ideas in the name of science to claim that the heavens and earth came about through other means. And yet we know that. We know it exists. We know how it came to exist. We know why it exists. And we know how it's going to come to its end. I mean, you, you often have people, and you've probably met people like this. They go around in their life and they struggle. What is the purpose? What is the meaning in life? I mean, 
part of all the, the studies of philosophy and even some roundabout studies in psychology is to try to figure out meaning, try to endow life and people with a sense of meaning, whereas we have that in the scriptures. We have that in the gospel. We have that in Christ, that confidence that he is our all in all. He is my life, the life that I now live in the flesh. I no longer live for myself, but I live for him who gave himself for me. I mean, the, the sense of, of meaningfulness, the sense of purpose, the sense of direction and design, all of those things that the world is trying to figure out and sadly so wrongly scripting what it might be, what it might mean, we have that, a richness of life with a profoundness of peace, a, a reconciliation with God. We know peace that passes understanding. We have the truest treasures of riches in Christ Jesus, far better than all those other things that are in this world. And so it's important for us to see that the devil's devices is he wants to come in and he wants to, to destroy. The scriptures say things like this in Revelation 2 concerning one of the churches there. The devil is about to throw some of you in prison that you may be tested for 10 days and have tribulation. Be faithful unto death. Wait a second. The devil is going to throw us into prison? And test us. Now, and the definition of that testing means in the process of that trial, that affliction, that testing, some of them will what? Be faithful unto death. That's pretty strong, isn't it? So the devil is given some scope and he's involved in some activity. Now, it's important to note this, though we'll see more of it later. This particular attack is against who? Not the world at large. It's against those who name the name of Christ. And he's going to come after them. And he is to some degree granted power that he might cause great problems in their lives. Great pain in their lives. Even possible death. The scriptures say it this way in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 and 15. Since therefore children share in flesh and blood, he himself, that's Christ, likewise partook in the same thing. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. Well, doesn't the Lord give and the Lord take away? Isn't, the one, isn't God the one who gives life and God's the one who takes away life? Yes, indeed, there is none that can take away a life if God has determined to sustain it. But when God determines to let a life be taken, oftentimes the, the taking of that life according to the design and purposes of God may indeed be the work of who? He who has the power over death. Some of you, I believe, have read Job chapter 1. And in Job chapter 1, Satan is, is before God, and there, and there is this communication going on between God 
and Satan. And what does he say to him? He says, have you considered Job, my servant, righteous and blameless? And what is, what is the response of Satan? Do you remember? Well, you have put a hedge around him. Now, the word for hedge there is actually a really strong word. It's not just a little bush that's hard to get over or hard to get through. It would be a hedge that would be thorny. So you're talking about not only barbed wire on the top, but there's no going through it because the whole thing is barbed. He is walled in, fenced in. Now, this is what Satan, you, so this is why Job is, is worshiping you. This is why Job is so committed to you, because there's no way to get at him. And I often like to point this out. How is it that Job knows? I mean, that Satan knows there's a hedge around Job. It's not a visible hedge. Please note that. Right? He's not walking around and there's this hedge floating around around him. That's not the idea. What it is, is he, the enemy, and or his co-workers, the demons, they have sought to attack. They have tried to get at Job, to demoralize him, to hurt him, to cause him problems. And every attempt of them to get at him or his things or his loved ones has failed. The devil, his attack is blocked every time. And so he's saying, well, the only reason that Job is worshiping you is because we can't get at him. And so what does God say? Well, Satan then says to, to uh, God, stretch out your hand now against Job. And then God says to him, all that he has is in your hands. Only do not touch Job. Okay? So the phrase stretch out your hands is, you know, you got to give permission for me to get at his things. If you don't give permission, I'm stuck. And so what does God do? He gives permission. But the permission that he gives is also what? Limited. You can get at his kids you can get his in, at his possessions but you cannot touch him now I, I generally now this gets speculative speculative is different than authoritative okay but as the enemy comes and takes away all of job's kids takes away all of job's flocks as he comes and does that do you think he doesn't even try to make a run at job he may try to make a run at Job, but if he does, what will happen? He's going to hit against a wall. He cannot get to him. Why? Because the hand has not been stretched out. Permission has not been granted. But, but what happens to Job's sons here? All of Job's sons and daughters, they die. Because God stretched out his hand, granting the permission, but who perpetrated the death upon them? The enemy. The devil. 
And I know this stuff sometimes is confusing. It starts to make our heads swim, but it's important for us to, to understand this. The devil is hard at work doing all that he can. But note this, at all times, he is only doing all that he can. And that is a wonderful comfort to us. Because he can do no more than God allows. And we're going to see a little bit more of that later. Let's see a little bit more about the effort of the enemy. In Luke chapter 13, verse 16, to see something of how the devil works, it says this. Now, this is a section in Scripture where there is a woman who has had, it says, a disabling spirit for 18 years. And in Luke chapter 13, verse 16, it says this. Ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed on the Sabbath? She was in a crippled condition. And Jesus is saying her crippling condition was caused by who? Satan. Now, this, is, this can be confusing to us, and I want to be careful. You can go on and you can see uh, a, a number of places. Acts chapter 10, verse 38, it says, uh, God anointed Jesus with the Holy Spirit and with power, and he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. So a tremendous amount of cripplings, a tremendous amount of illnesses, a lot of these things are the efforts of who? The enemy. Okay? And so this is going on even in these, in these days. And so we, we see the effort of the enemy, even that we see something more of the power of the enemy. The scripture tells us this in Luke chapter 22, verse 3. Remember this. Here is Judas Iscariot who's been going around with Jesus who has seen him heal, he's heard his teaching, he's seen these remarkable displays of power, but it tells us this concerning Judas in Luke 22, verse 3. Then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot, who was numbered among the twelve. That's a scary thing, isn't it? So we've, we've got the work of the enemy seeking to destroy, to bring to ruin, maiming, crippling, diseasing people. And we've got him now also here entering into people. It goes on and says this in the uh, Gospel of John chapter 13 verse 2. During the supper, that is the Lord's Supper. <laughs> That last supper in the upper room where Jesus had said there is one who is going to betray me. It says, during the supper, supper, verse 2, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. So that sinful, wicked betrayal of Christ our Savior by Judas who instigated that? Satan himself. It's important for us to see these things. The, the enemy is hard at work trying to bring disease, trying to bring destruction, trying to bring trouble and trials. Not only that, there, there, is, there is some scope for when we consider the devil's work, what I would consider, so those are some of the devil's devices. 
Secondly, I want us to also be aware of the devil's, what I would call, dark dungeon. Because uh, beyond the, the devil's devices that he's trying to exercise among all mankind, there is a power that he holds over those who are unbelievers. Until God in his grace breaks through that dark dungeon, breaks the chains and shines forth his light and sets them free. Really, it says this, for example, that the devil's dark dungeon is, is really this, that he holds the world captive in their sin. It says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 4 to 6. It says, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel in the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And so the gospel will be shared, and what is the devil doing his absolute best to do? That light of the glory of Christ that is shown forth in the gospel, the devil is doing his best to keep their eyes covered, to keep them in darkness, so that they, will, they won't see the truth of it. They won't perceive and know it. it. says that this is his design. But Paul into that says this, for we proclaim not ourselves, but Jesus Christ our, as Lord and ourselves as his servant. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown into our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So what's the enemy trying to do? Keep everyone in darkness. But then what does the grace of God do? To many of us, indeed to all of us who come to him in faith, it's just like on that day of creation where God said, let there be light. And what, what's the next phrase after that? When God said, let there be light, and there was light. That's how it works. How long do you think it took? How strong do you think the darkness would have to be to resist God's declaration of light? What if it was even darker? Doesn't matter because when God says let there be light, what happens? There's light. And so here's the reality. The enemy is trying to keep everybody in darkness and captive, but he has not the power when God says, let there be light. And that one is pulled out of that dark dungeon and brought life and grace and faith. Indeed, in, in giving the parables of, the, of the, the sower and the seed and those various soils, in Luke chapter 8, it's put this way. The ones who, who heard the gospel preached, and then the, the seeds were taken up by the birds. Remember that? It says, those who heard, the ones on the path are those who heard, and then the devil comes and takes the word away from their heart. There is the active attempt by the enemy to take the word away from their hearts. Now, of course, that only works until and unless God says what? Let there be light and shines the light of Christ into our hearts. But look at the rest of that. It's important for us to see, I think, the rest of this section. So that, verse 13 of Luke 8. And the ones that are on the rock are those who hear the word, 
and receive it with joy, but they have no root. They believe for a while, and then what? In the time of testing, fall away. Well, I want to ask you this. Who is often so personally and committedly involved per himself, or at least in engineering and organizing, times of testing against believers? Mm-hmm. And see, so this was the concern, part of the concern that Paul was having for the church in Thessalonica. They, they seemed to receive it with joy, but as they're facing this affliction, I, I'm just, I don't know if they have root. I don't know if their response was simply the human response of discouragement and dissatisfaction with their lives and with the way the world is and hoping for something more, seeking for some better scope of happiness. They don't know. And so in a time of testing, they fall away. And then verse 14 of Luke 8, as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of this life, and their fruit does not mature. The cares and riches and pleasures of this life. Do you remember when Satan was tempting Jesus? Takes him up there shows him all the kingdoms, says, this I will give to you. Fall down and worship me. One of the things that we, so there are two kinds of opposite testings here that show that someone has never really laid hold of the gospel or the gospel of the grace of God has never really laid hold of them. One, the time of testing, trials and difficulties come and what do they do? Eh, fall away. They don't stay the course. Others, it's a different kind of testing. It's not through trials. Here. Have some riches. Here, enjoy some pleasure. And suddenly, what, 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 what begins to be evident? Well, if God's not going to help me in these trials, then I don't have any use for him. Well, if, if I'm getting all of these things and enjoying all of these things, I don't really need God either. And this is that hard, hard work of the enemy to keep people in darkness. That's why it says in 1 John, for example, chapter 2, to the, to the believer, it says this. Do not love the world or the things in the world. It's important when I say do not love the world. Remember the phrasing back in 2 Corinthians 4, the phrasing regarding the enemy is what? He is the God of this world. Loving the world, these are the devices of the enemy. What are those things that, that we aren't to love? The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life. And then it goes on to say this. Uh, all that is in the world, these things are not, is not from the Father, but from the world. 
So this is not what God has set forth for his people. This is not what we're to be about. Now, someone would say this. Wait a second. It's not from God. So riches that exist in this world are not from God. Well, they exist by his hand. But the love of these things, that is not from God. And so if you find that your heart loves these things, watch out. And that's the test. If you love God, you will not love these things. But the love of these things, if it squashes out what seemed to be some love for God that existed at one point in time, be wary. Because the love that God pours into our hearts is powerful, is permanent. The life that he gives to us in Christ now causes us to see every single thing differently. The Gentiles, the nations, they seek after these things. But we're not. If we have food and clothing, we're content with these things by the grace of God. And so we've got to be wary of all of these things. First John actually states it this way, and he states it in a way that's very uncomfortable and very scary. But since he says it and not me, I'm happy to read it for you. First John 3, 8 through 10 says this. Whoever makes a practice of sinning means there's a particular thing that they're doing that they know is wrong. They know it is unlawful. They know it is not pleasing to God. They know it is purely self-serving and sinful. They, know, they make a practice of this. Here it comes. They did it again. They're doing it again. We're not talking about the odd and occasional stumbling in a moment of weakness or a moment of anger. We're talking about something that has become ongoing in their life. What does it say? Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. I mean, that's just really strong language, isn't it? Is of the devil. Now, generally speaking, you gather a church together, and if we were to say, over here is team devil, and over here is God's side, everybody go to the side that you want to be on. I would expect, hopefully, nobody would go over and align themselves. Yeah, I want to be on Team Devil. We wouldn't have that tendency, and generally most of us would, would shy away from that and say that's not right. Here the scripture doesn't say, choose which side you want to be on. It doesn't say, choose who you want to align yourself with. It simply says this, you want to know which side you're on? Look at your life, and you'll know what side you're on. So someone's mouth may be saying what? I am on the Lord's side, while their life, yeah, sorry, while their life is saying what? I'm on the devil's side. Now, that one sentence would have been enough to be powerful, but he's not done because I'm going to keep reading. For the devil has been sinning since the beginning, from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Those who Christ has come to will not continue to live in the pattern of the devil. Well, let's see what it says more. Verse 9, no one, how many does that leave? Zero. 
No one born of God, those who are born again, those that the grace of God has shown into their hearts and made them a new creation in Christ Jesus. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. I'm just thankful for all the emphasis we're getting. <laughs> for God's seed abides in him. I mean, that's beautiful. It's not, it's not somehow that, it, it, it's the grace of God. As he does this work within us, we can't live like that. And if we find ourselves still living like that, stop thinking that you're still God's. You're in trouble and you better get on your knees and cry out to God, save me because I am a sinner and I can't save myself. I can't escape from this. I can't stop doing this. I am a captive to this sin. Set me free, oh God, please. Let me keep reading. Still in 1 John chapter 3, verse, 9, verse 10. Or verse 9. He cannot keep on sinning as a practice because he has been born of God. Verse 10 says, by this it is evident... Who are the children of God? And who are the children of the devil? Now, I know, I know you and me, and our, our nat nature wants to say this. All right, over here are the children of God, and over here are the children of the devil, and I'm the child of my parent. As if somehow you escape those two categories. There is no third category. <laughs> you are either a child of God by grace because you've been born of God and the seed of God dwells in you. Or you are what? A child of the devil. And how will you know which one you are? It's not by your t-shirts. It's not by your slogans. It's not even by your claims. It's by the clear and evident character of your life. How do you live? And how do you... Now, here's the beautiful thing. God is able to take those who are by nature children of wrath like the rest. Who are by nature just as wicked. Who, who, who are themselves presently sons of disobedience in that dark dungeon. And what is God able to do? pluck them out of that kingdom and move them over to the kingdom of his beloved son. Cry out to him. Now, what if the devil was to grab hold of him, wrapping his arms, wrapping his legs, and just not letting go? Does God have to look at that and say, well, nothing I can do now. Is that how it works? No, I'll tell you this. The devil... And all the demons, they could dogpile onto one sinner to where you would think he is buried beneath that mass of evil. And you know what God can do? Let there be light. And it would be just like, poof. they're blown off of him and he's moved over. Nothing, the power of the enemy cannot hold that. But it's important for us to know. And when the sun sets you free, you are free indeed. Those things are no longer controlling you. Now listen, just because the enemy does not any longer have 
power over you does not mean he's not coming after you. He's still going to come after you. And that's where we move on to our next thought, the, destruct, the devil's destructive desires. He comes against us too. In Ephesians chapter 6, and I'm going to start really flying. Ephesians chapter 6 says this, put on the whole armor of God. Why? That you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. He's still trying to distract us, to deceive us, to discourage us, to destroy us. He is still relentlessly coming after us. But you know what? We have the armor of God. He has provided those things for our protection. Indeed, for our empowerment. Because it reminds us of what we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That's strong language, isn't it? I mean, there is a real spiritual battle taking place. The enemy is going to try to come after you and, and, and wheedle you into, coerce you, coax you into practicing sin. He's going to kind of do the things that he did in the garden. Did God really say people who practice immorality will not inherit the kingdom of God? Did he really mean that those who are greedy and covetous will not inherit? Did he really say those things? No. He's a loving and forgiving and merciful God. You will not really die. You will not really go to hell. He would never do that to you. Right? I mean, that's what the enemy tries to make, make you feel like. You know, or he tries to even maybe go like this. Look. You're not doing this and this. I mean, you're not out stealing every night. You haven't hardly killed anybody. You know, you, 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 you've got all these, you know, all you're doing. I mean, there's just these one or two little pet sins, you know, that you're taking care of. Just these one. I mean, those little, I mean, some of the big areas you're not doing. Does it say, did, did it say there uh, those who are the children of God and those who are the children of the devil are the difference is big or small sins? No, it says make a practice of sinning. No, it, it doesn't say make your list, really bad sins, medium sins, little bitty sins. And, and the little bitty sins, yeah, carry on. No, that's not, the, that's not the idea in Scripture. And that's not the working of the grace of God. The working of the grace of God causes his people to say, I want none of that because that is of the world. Indeed, that is of the enemy. I want none of that. And I like what it says here in this passage because when, when we're dealing with these battles in verse 13 of Ephesians 6, it says this, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand the evil day when he's coming at you with all he's got and having done all to what? Stand firm. He's coming and he's coming and he's tempting and he's pressurizing with, with pain and difficulty and struggles and afflictions or with possibilities and pleasures 
and successes and progress. He's coming relentlessly and with the whole armor of God. Come as you want. I am not walking the way of sin. I'm not going to compromise and fall because God's purposes for me are greater, are different, are more powerful. That's why it goes on to say, um, uh, uh, so, so many of these things. Further on with regard to these areas, it's important for us to know this. I want you to see in Luke chapter 22, it's kind of like Job. Remember, the second time then Satan came and Job had not denied God, he had actually worshipped God and blessed God, said the Lord takes, giveth and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the Lord. I mean, so instead of complaining about God, he was still praising God. And so the devil said, well, let me touch him. And he then ended up with sores from head to the soles of his feet. Miserable sores, somehow the kind that he's scraping with broken pieces of pots. You know, a a miserable, oozing, itching, agonizing, ugh. And yet, still, the, the enemy couldn't do that until what? God permitted it. I want you to see also this with me in uh, Luke chapter 22, verse 31. Here we are coming to the end of the life of Christ. Um, Jesus has been telling his disciples also, listen, all of you are going to run from me. You're all going to turn away. Of which Peter and the others are saying what? But primarily Peter, what is he saying? Yeah, no, Jesus, I'm not going to desert you. I'm not going to deny you. I, even if I have to deny, to die, I will not deny you. And then what did Jesus say to him? No, this night you will deny me three times. But I want us to see something about how that unfolded. Luke chapter 22, verse 31 says this, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded. Now, that's not that he can make demands of God. Really, the term is requested or asked permission. Really, it carries this idea, uh, it carries the idea of he asked and received permission. To what? To have you that he might sift you like wheat. Now, the phrase sift you like wheat is confusing to us because most of us don't sift wheat. And that was a figure of speech for them. Let me take and give you a a figure of speech like sift you with wheat that would work for us. The devil has requested to have you that he might pick you apart. He wants to come and get you. He wants to poke holes with you. In Genesis chapter 4, remember when, when Cain had killed his brother and done dishonorably. What did God say? Sin is crouching at your door, and it wants to have mastery over you, but you must rule over it. Sin is right there crouching at your door. See, this is the struggle for us in this world. Sin is crouching at your door, but listen, sin's crouching at your door, and the devil's knocking on it. So that what happens? Well, let me answer that door. Well, you answer the door, and the fellow who's crouching jumps you. So you don't respond to the call 
of the enemy. It's, it's a strong thing. Uh, the scriptures remind us of, of the, the way that temptation takes place. In James, it says, when someone is tempted, no one should say that he's tempted of God. It actually says he's tempted by his own desires. And so what the devil does is he watches you. He looks at your weaknesses. He looks at the things that you desire. And then he comes and offers you that. You know. We're getting ready to have a, a, a wonderful feast back here. Where we'll have a table full of things that people generally would desire. I mean, this morning when my wife and I picked up the donuts, because on a rare occasion we doubled the normal order, she, uh, she gave us a free cinnamon roll to go with those donuts. I know, likey the cinnamon. So no temptation at all. I mean, you could pile up a hundred of those guys right there, and I'm just not interested. It, it, it does not draw me. So if somebody wants, you know, if I was uh, trying to keep a health regime and, and, and not eat certain things, I'm not going to eat any desserts for two months. No sweets, no nothing. If somebody, I've got a cinnamon roll, I'd be like, Great. Yeah, thank you. That helps, actually. That really helps me. I have no desire for that. Uh, you don't tempt someone with what they don't want. But each of us, each of us have a weakness, have a desire. You get some of those other donuts in there, those are looking pretty good. You know, those are, are much more desirable. Some of the other desserts that we're going to have afterwards are even more desirable. And so that's what the enemy does. He, he works to do that, and he tries to continue to influence. He tries to continue to lead us astray. He wants us to become puffed up with deceit. He wants us to be uh, deceived. In, in Acts chapter 5, when Ananias and Sapphira are, are lying to the early church, it is said to Ananias, it says, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Just the, the sense of no one will find it out. You're going to be okay. Your sin will be kept a secret. Okay. The devil reassured him that it's no big deal. What you're doing isn't hurting anybody else. So it's no big deal. I mean, answer this question. When Ananias kept back some of the money that he had sold that property for for himself and gave the rest of it to the church, claiming he was given all of it. When he did that, who was hurt? I mean, how many people would have been, ow, or crying and weeping? And how, what? No, generally you would say, well, that's, um, that's a sin where nobody suffers. Well, not on that day. <laughs> On that day, what happened? Yeah, he fell dead. And then his wife comes in. And she falls down dead as she lies too. The whole idea that there are small sins, secret sins, sins which cause no one to suffer, so no big deal. It doesn't exist. The enemy tries to get us to believe those things. I've got a zip on. James, I want to remind us of this. James chapter 4, verse 7 and 8 says this. 
And this is to the believer. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Isn't that great? So here is the reality for us. Because of the armor of God, as we yield ourselves in submission to God, no way, as Jesus did in the, in, in the time of his temptation, not your way, it is written. Not your way, it is written. I'm not doing it in, in, in the way that the enemy claims. I'm not going to follow what might be my temporal desires. Because remember, he was famished after 40 days. He wanted to eat. And actually turning stone into bread, is there any verse prohibiting that in the word of God? No. To eat, would that have been a sin for Jesus? No. But his priorities were absolutely different. So submit yourself therefore to God. And you resist the devil. I ask you this. What's the best way to resist the devil? These are two sides. The best way to resist the devil is what? Submitting yourself to God. The devil is tempting you according to your desires most often. And you say this. Would I sit down to do this? Would I participate in this with God? Would I sit down at a table? Would, 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 I, would I stand in a crowd? Would I be involved with this if Jesus was my house guest? I think there's a lot of things that people do that they would do very different if they took seriously the reality of Christ's presence. Right? Remember, he will never leave us or forsake us. He is with us always. When we study, and I teach this often for the students, the, uh, the idea of the omnipresence of God, he is everywhere. So at, at what point is something right or wrong? Right is always right and wrong is always wrong. It does not change by who is in the room. But we might change what we watch on the television by who's in the room. We might change what sites we go to on the phone and computer, depending on who's in the room and or looking at our phone with us. But right is still right, and wrong is still wrong. See, and what's happened is this. When we tend to do wrong, we oft find company that enjoys that wrong with us. This can't be that wrong because I'm doing it with others around. And they're joining in. So it can't be that bad. And we're having fun. Well, that's not the test you're going for, brothers and sisters. Oh, I wish that we had much more time. Remind you, I guess we'll close out with 1 Peter chapter 5. Verse 8 and following. It says this. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Firm in your faith. Doing what? Knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brothers throughout the world. And after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself Restore, 
confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. So is the enemy hard at work? Yes. Does he have schemes and tactics and designs? Yes. Is he looking for our weak spot? Yes. Will he have victory over us? No. Why? Because greater is he that is in us than he that is in the, the world. That is why we are more than conquerors through him. That is why we by grace are able to resist him. Now in your experience I ask you this. Every time he's tempted you. Did you resist? Every time he's tempted you. Did you conquer? I know you didn't. Because I know I haven't. But once we've been tried, what? The beauty of this is Jesus actually said to Peter when he was going to be sifted like wheat, he said, but I have prayed for you that after you have fallen, <laughs> you will again come back. We have an intercessor who sympathizes with our weaknesses. Our weaknesses will not be an ongoing pattern and practice of sin, but brothers and sisters, in this life, you will not entirely escape it. But you can have repeated and increasing victories over it. You can, by grace, resist it. And how do you do it? Firm in your faith. Resist Him by submitting to God. This is what I believe. This is what I value. This is who I love and I obey and I desire to please. Go away from me, Satan. And I like the way that Jesus ended that time of temptation in the wilderness. Be gone. Away with you. It's done. And that idea that we can resist and that he flees. May God grant us grace. The enemy is hard at work, but what, what is the enemy's end? He will be thrown into the lake of fire, torment day and night forever and ever. His end is sure. His defeat is secured. Our deliverance is in Christ without a doubt. But I want us to know this. He's not only delivered us from that fellow's kingdom, but that enemy no longer has power over us. He's going to try to influence us. He's going to try to persuade us. He's going to try to put things into our heart and mind. But you know what? We fill our heart and mind with God's truth, with God's word. We stand firm in that, and by grace, we resist it. Let's pray.